Good morning, church. <clears throat> well, my name's Brian Shu. I get to serve as one of the elders here. Uh, one of our traditions here at PBC is that the, one of the elders gives uh, the last sermon of the year here, so you get me this morning. <clears throat> well, thanks. Um, usually I have on one of the yellow lanyards with the name tag, and mine says elder at the bottom. I'm usually checking in the kids, and sometimes they see my name tag, and they're like, what does elder mean? Does that mean you're old? Pretty much that's what that means. Um, but thank you. Um, we're glad that you're here. If you're a visitor this morning, I um, want to extend <clears throat> excuse me, another warm welcome to you, uh, as Rob has. Uh, it, this is a great time of year to be visiting friends and family. Um, this is one of my favorite times of the year to do just that. Uh, my family's in a little bit of a transition. My wife and I have three kids, and two of them are off at college now. So they actually got to come uh, back to us this year, and that was, that's been a special time for us to have a full house again. Um, so I do see a lot of our college students who have come back uh, for, this, for these last couple weeks, and so I want to make sure you are welcomed as well. So it's great to have you all home uh, with us here at PBC as well. Um, as I think back at that, uh, the time of the college applications, one of my favorite things about that was actually the trips that I got to take with my kids visiting the different college campuses and whatnot. Um, with my middle daughter, uh, who's right now at George Washington University, we got to take an East Coast trip. And that was different, because I'm a West Coast person, born, raised, I don't know anything about the East Coast. So, you know, sending her off to the East Coast was not on the top of my list, uh, let's just say that. Uh, but as we visited the campus, it was, it's pretty amazing, I got to say. I don't know if you know anything about it. it. The campus is woven right into the city, right? This is D.C., our nation's capital. So as we get out of the subway, I open Apple Maps, and I'm looking, where's the campus? So it's right here. Well, three blocks away is the White House. Is that right? That can't be. And then the Lincoln Memorial is just 10 minutes south. And then all these amazing landmarks, right? And I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be tough to beat. Um, and sure enough, uh, we went to the new student uh, orientation. And as you walk into the room, they're playing this video of graduation, which I thought was kind of weird. Why are you playing a graduation video for new students, right? And I think there's a slide of the, of the picture there. <clears throat> right, you got the Capitol in the background. So George Washington University's, I guess, the only one that, the only college that's allowed to have their graduations in the National Mall. And so you have this amazing backdrop of the, of the Capitol, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, all in the background of, of graduation. And suddenly it became clear to me, they're trying to sell me on this, right? Imagine yourself four years from now at graduation, sitting in this amazing environment. You did it. You accomplished your goals. Come here, right? This is, this is what we do, right? We want to sell people on our ideas. We want people to come for social influencers, this is what we do. You want, to, you want to sell a brand, right, that brings people, that draws people in. You don't want to deliver a message that drives people away. Companies spend millions of dollars advertising to buy their product, right? Even, even failures on social media are spun as, oh, this is a funny thing, watch this, right, to get more and more likes and views. Churches sometimes fall in this category as well. Seemingly, our world at every term is built to create a following. 
to build followers, to get critical mass. So, of course, Jesus is going to do something different, right? Because that's what he does. He does something different. In John 6, that's what we're going to see. In John 6, Jesus does a couple of miracles, which are amazing in their own right. Then he teaches. So the stage is set for Jesus to do something amazing, to launch this big following, right, which we know is Christianity. Except the exact opposite happens. The people that have been following and listening, they leave. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Is he even afraid that no one's going to follow him and the kingdom's not going to happen the way it's supposed to? Absolutely not. Jesus knows exactly what we all need to hear. He knows he's not going to fail. He's not trying to sell us on anything. He's trying to save us. He's going to save us. And in the end, Jesus asks the question that we all will have to answer. After seeing and hearing all that he has done, all that who he is, are we going to walk away in unbelief too? So there are 71 verses in John chapter 6. Uh, that should put us right at when the ball drops for New Year's Eve. Uh, just kidding. But no, I, I only, like I said, we only get up here once a year. So we're going to go through all 71. Um, we're mainly going to focus on uh, the, the teaching, that, that the interaction conversation that Jesus has with the crowd. So we'll touch on a little bit on the miracles. Um, the first miracle is the feeding of the multitude. And I think that's to help draw us and to remind us of uh, another feeding miracle in the Bible in the Old Testament, which we've looked at in the past, uh, Moses and manna. The other one is Jesus walking on the water. Uh, that one, again, is to help establish Jesus' identity as God. So let's look at the first miracle, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, kids, I think you are very familiar with this story, right? He t- here Jesus has a multitude of people who have followed him. They've seen him do uh, healings and whatnot in previous chapters. And now they're at, the mul- they're at this hillside. And there's at least 5,000 men there. Uh, there's probably even more people with women and children. And he looks on the crowd and he has compassion, right? Because they're, they're hungry. It's, it's late. And so he asks the disciples to go figure out a way to feed them, which, of course, he knows they can't do it. So kids, what do they do? He finds two fish and five, five loaves of bread from a little boy. And from that, he's able to multiply that and feed the entire crowd, right? It's an extraordinary miracle. And so how do the people respond to this? I think this is really telling for the conversation we're going to dive into. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So it sounds like they've, they've gotten the picture, right? They see the miracle, they understand, or they're starting to grasp at least maybe who this Jesus is. And they mention this prophet. Well, who is this prophet? They're probably thinking back to Deuteronomy 18.15. And this says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen to. This is Moses speaking, right? Moses is projecting prophesying into the future that God is going to raise up a prophet like him. But we can see that in Jesus' response in the very next verse, he senses they actually don't understand what's going on. Verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force 
to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, Moses' prophecy said God was going to raise a prophet. But the people were the ones who were coming to Jesus and wanting to take him by force. Deuteronomy said God was going to raise a prophet. But Jesus perceived that they wanted a king. Right? So there were just some things that weren't lining up here with the crowd. So Jesus doesn't take the opportunity here to seize the masses, to use it for his own devices. Instead, he says, this isn't right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move away. So he withdraws himself. Right? It's not expected. I thought Jesus would want to take advantage of this, of this opportunity to seize momentum, but he doesn't. So let's see what he does. This leads us to the next miracle. And the next miracle should start off with, it was a dark and stormy night, right? I don't know why in a dark and stormy night you would get in a boat and start rowing out to the sea, but that's what his disciples do. Jesus is probably smart when he doesn't get in the boat with them. They row off to sea. And then we find Jesus meets them in the sea without a boat. He's walking on the water. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, and Scott Grant tied in John chapter 1, the beginning of John 1, with Genesis. John was using his opening verses to hearken back to Genesis, to show that Jesus was the creator who was there at the very beginning of things. I think John's doing the same thing here. He's tying us back to Genesis 1 chapter 2, which says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is contrast to what Jesus does. He's the one walking on the water. He's the one walking on the water in the, in the chaos, in the storm. There leaves no doubt to the identity of Jesus. He is God. And he's about to do something new. So the crowd is starting to see this, right? They see Oh, the boat's left, but Jesus didn't get in, but he's over there with them. That's kind of weird. How did he do that? And they ask the question, how did you, when did you get here, Jesus? More likely what they were asking was, how did you get here? So this, from this, we launch into the dialogue. And you're going to feel like, well, isn't Jesus saying kind of the same thing over and over, just slightly nuanced? That's kind of how I felt as I was studying it. But I kind of broke out a couple different themes that I think Jesus is saying here. The first is he tells us in, very, in, in a couple truly, truly statements, you'll see that repeated here. Jesus is telling us the truth about a few things. One, he's telling us the truth about work, the truth about identity, and the truth about life. Okay, so we're going to dive into the first one. He tells us what true work is. And that starts in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus doesn't mince words. He gets right to the point. 
They're seeking Jesus, not for the right reason. Their actions have pointed him, them to Jesus to fulfill physical needs, but they haven't seen it for the spiritual needs. Now, if we're honest, I think with ourselves, we're not too different from this crowd. I think most of us spend our days worrying about how we're going to make it physically in this world. Even in the abundance of Silicon Valley, it can be tough. I was looking up um, some numbers. Uh, for example, uh, the salary levels in Silicon Valley are astronomical. If you make just shy of $100,000 as a single income, that's considered low income here in Silicon Valley. That's amazing, $100,000. Food banks like Second Harvest are serving 500,000 people a month. The population of, Silicon, of Santa Clara County, I think, is 2 million people. That's astronomical. According to the Public Policy Institute, in 2022, 30%, 30% of all people in the U.S. experiencing homelessness were in California. 30%. 50% of those all unsheltered in the United States were in California. So we, we see that, right? It's tough to make it here. Even if some of the basic needs, you're feeling like you're not struggling with that, right? You're probably like me. When you go to work, am I really cutting it? Am I doing the job that's expected of me? Am I working hard enough? Am I meeting my peers? Mental health crisis for students is on the rise. It's tough to be a student, right? The competition's intense. These struggles are real. How do we make it in this world? Is Jesus just being callous here? I don't think he is. And I'm, great, I'm, I'm grateful that the announcements this morning were about how this church enters into tough situations for people. And we have a group of people who have been loving on people, providing meals for weeks and years on end that we'll be able to house those who don't have housing. Jesus isn't being callous to that. In Mark's account of this gospel, it very clearly says Jesus had compassion. So what, what is John actually pointing to? He's just saying, this is not it. Don't stop there. Keep coming in. There's a spiritual reality here. So the crowd does take the first step. They sense what Jesus is saying. They say, okay, if we're not doing the right work, what is the work? that we should be doing. And perhaps they've been conditioned, trying to keep the law of their lives to say, we'll take on one other thing. It's okay, tell me what I gotta do. And maybe we've asked that question of God ourselves. God, just tell me what I gotta do to be right with you. I've asked that question. I remember sitting over on that side uh, as a young adult in the, in the fireside there I don't remember the service, but I remember uh, sitting there thinking, I'm not good enough, God. My shortcomings are too much, and they keep repeating, and they keep happening. And then we sang the song, White as Snow, and I'll take this under advisement from Cormac not to sing it, um, but I'll just say the lyrics. White as snow, white as snow, though my sins are wear scarlet, Lord, I know Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven through the power of your blood, through the wonder of your love, through faith in you, I know that I can be white as snow. And I remember those words piercing my heart because 
I did not think I was white as snow, despite what Jesus had done. That I was still trying to earn something to make it right with God. And so this was the work of God in my life to show me, no, it is what Jesus said. You are going to be white as snow. You are white as snow because of what I'm going to do. So this is the work that God is doing. Believe. That's true work. Next, Jesus talks about true identity. If Jesus asks the crowd to believe in him, they want to know who he is. So let's see what he says, starting in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the crowd's response seems a little ironic, doesn't it? Because they just saw these two amazing miracles. And yet they come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, what is it you're going to do here? What sign do you do so that we may see and believe? Haven't they already seen it? Haven't they already believed it? Their tone is getting a little more tense, a little more confrontational. So what they're actually doing is they're raising their stakes, right? They're recalling a time back to when their fathers received bread from heaven. And that was an amazing miracle, right? That was bread every morning, manna, received every morning as the Israelites wandered through the desert. 40 years, not one time, 40 years to over a million people, not 5,000. So they're kind of calling Jesus out and they're like, hey, our fathers have gotten something pretty special. Who are you? They even quote scripture to kind of back up their point. But Jesus corrects them. The scripture they quote if you read it in context, is God. God is the one who provides the bread. So it's not Moses, so we can take Moses out of the picture, right? And then they reference their fathers as being the one who received the bread. And Jesus switches it on them and says, that's my father that gives you the bread. So the crowd appealing to their fathers gives a glimpse into how they think about life a stronghold into their identity. They think that because their fathers were the ones who received the bread, that they're the ones who should be entitled to receiving the bread from heaven that Jesus is talking about. They are, after all, God's chosen people. Their identity is wrapped up in that. And identity matters. It did back then. It really does now. Our society is grappling with identity. Individually, collectively. And we all find identities in different ways. Think about how you identify yourself. 
But are there things in that way in which you identify yourself that keep you from seeing who Jesus really is? Perhaps the first identity question we should be asking of ourselves is not who we are, but who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, it's got to change everything about us. Wouldn't that change how we think who we are? So who is it that Jesus says he is? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Think about that for a second. Think about how all the ways you could define God, and I think this is one of the most amazing ways to define God. We'll never hunger, we'll never thirst, we'll be satisfied. All my needs, all my cares, all my wants are taken care of by Jesus. Think about the last time you were satisfied by something. Maybe that's just a taste that God's giving you of something more beautiful to come. The one who completely satisfies, that's who Jesus is. So what work would Jesus do that they may see and believe? Well, he doesn't really answer that question just yet. He kind of gives a hint to it. But that work is for Jesus on the cross when he gives up his flesh and his blood for us. Do you see him? Do you believe? Jesus is the bread of life. So we move to the final truly, truly statements. And we're going to talk about true life here. So this passage gets a little bit long Um, But I want to read it through so we can read everything in context. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on on this bread will live forever. This last section is really the peak of the conversation. Jesus is making the point that whatever it is you thought would bring you life doesn't. Only Jesus does. For the Jews, they had trusted in an old covenant, keep the law, 
they'll be okay. Jesus is clearly saying, we're bringing in a new covenant sealed by his flesh and his blood. If you noticed, John's description of the audience changed from crowd to the Jews. It's pretty clear that the crowd has been of Jewish nationality. So why does John make this change? Throughout John's gospel, when he uses this term, the Jews, it's in reference to those who are hostile to Jesus. In fact, one of the modern day translations of the Bible, the newest New English translation, translates this as Jews who are hostile to Jesus. Jesus was clear, the crowd doesn't believe. They're now growing hostile to him. One note that I think is important for our day, as I was looking through some of this, there were a lot of references to John being anti-Semitic because of this reference to Jews being hostile to Jesus. And I think in our day, we see that anti-Semitism growing, that sentiment um, happening in, in our midst because of the war in Gaza. However, using this text or anything from John to justify hate is wrong. In this passage, we can see the, the topic is belief, whether you do or not. That is the deciding factor. If we somehow think of ourselves as being better than someone else because we believe and they don't, then we misunderstand even the nature of our belief. All of us, without the intervening love of God, would not believe. We would choose something different. We believe because God is working in us. We've already seen this in the, in the passages we've read. Let me repeat some of them. Jesus answered them in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All of these verses point to God being the one who draws us in. A few weeks ago, uh, many of you shared your stories of faith, how you had come to know Jesus as your, as your Savior. And that was amazing for me to hear, because throughout all the stories, you could see God orchestrate an event, a relationship, a conversation, all of those things pivotal for each one of us differently in our own ways to come to saving faith of Christ. Even in my own story, I could see God in my, orchestrating my family's history. My grandfather came from a small village in China. No chance he could hear the gospel there. No chance if I was born there, I would ever hear the gospel. But he came to America where you could hear the gospel at least more freely. Clearly, God has drawn me. He has worked in my, in my family's life. He's worked in my life. So notice that Jews don't actually object to the statements that God chooses people. What is it they object to? They object that Jesus is the gatekeeper. Right? Who is this Jesus? We know who, where he's from. We know who his parents are. How can he be the one? They saw the signs that no human could do, and yet they still don't believe. Jesus continues to explain that access to the Father is not only through him, but that he is also ushering a new covenant. By quoting the scripture that says, they will all be taught by God, that's Isaiah 54, 13. 
Jesus points to God's promise to bring a new covenant. That promise didn't depend on people keeping the law. That promise was God dwelling with his people. They would be taught by God, and Jesus was teaching them in that moment. Now, Jesus doubles down on his statements and uses the most vivid vivid and shocking language and imagery. He says, Jesus, or he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So here's the work that I think that Jesus is doing. He's telling them explicitly now, I'm gonna give my life up for you. To eat his flesh and drink his blood, I, I do think is, is meant to be jarring to the, to the listener for us. What is it that Jesus means here? I think he's speaking to the, to the nature of being all in on Jesus. That our whole being, intellectually, physically, spiritually, emotionally, we're all in on who Jesus is. That he is the source of life for us. There is no other way. The other imagery I think that we as Christians understand is this picture of communion, which we're going to participate all together with later. Right? The bread symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. The juice symbolizing the blood shed for us. So it's very much a picture of those two things. Verse 58 summarizes true life up for us. The old bread didn't save anyone. Jesus, the bread of life, gives true life. Well, how did the people respond? Let's read on in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who were did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So now John moves his, his focus, right? We started with the crowd, went to the Jews. Now we're into the disciples. The disciples, at least this broader group, have been more closely following Jesus, but they have their doubts too. They're saying, this is a hard saying. Who can follow it? What are the hard sayings for us? Maybe it's, I don't like Christians, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Or, I don't agree that the Bible says, again, fill in the blank. I'm sure many of us can make a long list of what we don't agree with, of what are hard sayings for us. But I think the hardest saying is still the one we're listening to right now. Will you eat his flesh and drink his blood? 
Will you come and be satisfied so that you never hunger and thirst again? Because we can't find that in our work. We won't find it in our identity. We won't find it in anything that we thought gave us life. I'm not saying that the other things, those other questions aren't important. They are. They're, they're honest questions and we would need to deal with them. But it, this is the first question we have to answer. And this is what the disciples who followed Jesus had to answer. And they did. And they answered by leaving. Which I think is crazy, shocking. They're following Jesus and they leave. So then the conversation moves specifically to the 12. Jesus senses their struggle as well. So he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And what is Peter's answer? Peter's answer is finally the confession of faith we have been waiting for. We should be celebrating, right? And I think Jesus' response, again, is a little bit surprising because he's kind of muted on his response. But I think looking at it closely provides a little more comfort. Jesus is pretty matter-of-fact about Peter's response because that's exactly how Peter should respond. Why? Because Jesus chose Peter. Jesus will not lose Peter. We know Peter's going to have all sorts of problems later on. But Jesus is not going to lose Peter. Just like Jesus was not going to lose me. As I sat over there as a young adult, struggling, wondering about my faith. Jesus wasn't going to let me go. Jesus isn't going to let you go. If you're sitting there now this morning, wondering about, am I going to leave? Jesus is not going to let you go. Jesus' answer to Peter's response goes right to Judas, which is kind of weird. But actually, Judas is mentioned twice here, which means there's probably something important here that we should look at. And I think what's equally jarring to us, what can be equally jarring to us in our faith, is maybe we've had a close friend that's walked with us, someone that we know, a mentor, a parent, a child, who seem to be walking closely with Jesus, and they walk away from the faith. They leave. Because, hey, if they walk away, what's going to happen to me? Can't I do the same thing? Isn't that going to happen to me? Jesus' answer is simple. He knows. He knew about Judas. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't surprised that he got betrayed. He wasn't surprised he ended up on the cross. Jesus is not surprised. No one can come to him unless it's granted by the Father. He will not lose anyone that the Father gives. As we wrap up, New Year's resolutions are full of promises of healthier diets. I have one for you this morning. Feast on the true bread of life. You will never hunger, you will never thirst, and it leads to eternal life. Come believe in Jesus. To concretely remind us of Jesus giving us his flesh and blood uh, this morning, to remind us of the new covenant that God now dwells in us, we're going to share in communion together, so if you would take out your communion cups. We're going to take both elements together. On the bottom of the cup, actually, is the bread. Um, and as we start, I'm going to read uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians, where the Lord instructs his disciples on the meaning and purpose of communion. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Have a great new year.